0: where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the bizarre case of Victim F. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 2015, a man named Aaron Quinn made an emergency call to the police in Vallejo, California. The story he told them was bizarre, like something out of a movie. And what he said was only the beginning of today's mystery. In the coming weeks, the story riveted the nation and made the news across California, across America, and across the world. But what did Aaron Quinn tell the police? What did they do in response? And what was the ultimate bizarre truth? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World.
1: Jimmy, today's mystery is a true crime story, so what do you want to say to begin? As always on Mysterious World, we will be keeping it clinical, so we won't be dwelling on gory details or, you know, frightening things. But I don't want to spoil what's going to happen in this case, so I'm not going to say much more at this point. The less you know about the story going in, the more you'll appreciate it. However, I will assure listeners that despite how bizarre it is, this case is not as frightening as you might suppose. It might not be suitable for especially sensitive listeners, but it's not as bad as you might think. Also, this mystery has been solved, so we'll be telling you the story of what happened from beginning to end. And where does our story begin? It begins on the afternoon of Monday, March 23rd, 2015. Uh, the time is one fifty four p.m. in the afternoon, and at that time, the police in Vallejo, California received a phone call from Aaron Quinn. And by the way, Vallejo, California is a city that's famous in the annals of true crime. It was there that the famous Zodiac serial killer first came to public attention back in 1969. And yes, we will be talking about the Zodiac killer in future episodes, but that's not our story today. Aaron lived on Mare Island, which is a peninsula in the city of Vallejo. Aaron himself was born in Rutland, Vermont in November 1984 and he was 30 years old at the time of this event, and he was raised in California. He was a physical therapist who worked for Kaiser Hospital in Vallejo. He had been engaged to a woman who we will call Jennifer Jones, though that's not her real name, and the two broke up after he discovered that Jennifer was cheating on him. Afterwards, in June of 2014, he met another woman named Denise Huskins. She also was a physical therapist, she was about 30 years old at the time, and they met at work. And at 1.54 p.m. on the afternoon of March 23rd, Aaron called the police.
2: 911, what's your emergency?
0: My girlfriend's been kidnapped.
1: Within two minutes, which is surprisingly fast, two police officers arrived at Aaron's house. He repeated what he told the 911 dispatcher that his girlfriend had been kidnapped, And apparently their first question to him was, Are you on drugs? This was because Aaron looked like a mess. His speech may have been slurred, and he said yes, that he had been drugged by the kidnappers. When the cops came in, they heard an electronic bell noise that sounded like, Dung, dung, dung. This noise was coming from a video camera that was taped to the wall. A police officer then went over to the camera and unplugged it. The officers also noticed that there was a lot of red tape on the floor in the kitchen marking out different zones, and they noticed a dozen beer bottles by the garbage can. They asked Aaron if he had been partying, and he said no, that he collected the beer bottles before taking them out to the recycling bin in a bunch. The officer also noticed two lowball whiskey glasses in the sink, which Aaron said were from last night, and he noticed a third lowball whiskey glass on the coffee table, which Aaron said was water. The officer then ordered Aaron to go out of the house and sit on his front steps while he searched the house. The other officer accompanied Aaron and guarded him while this happened. Soon, one of the officers said that they needed to take Aaron down to the police station, which was 10 minutes away, for a blood sample. On the way to the station, the officer asked him if he and Denise had been fighting, and Aaron indicated that he and Denise had been arguing recently. He had been having a hard time getting over his former fiance Jennifer, but he was no longer in love with her, and he and Denise had made up and had a good evening the night before. At the police station, the police said that they needed to take a blood sample and all of Aaron's clothing as potential evidence. They also take photographs of Aaron and a DNA swab from his inner cheek. After taking his clothes, they give him a white t-shirt to wear and pants that have thick black and white stripes on them, which are one of the classic patterns worn by prisoners to make them stand out from other people. The pants have the word Solano prison on them, but the police say these are the only thing that they have for Aaron to wear. They do not give him socks, underwear, or shoes. The police seem like they're treating
0: Aaron with a lot
1: of suspicion. It sounds like they were treating Aaron like a criminal. Why were they doing this? Because when a woman is the victim of a crime and disappears, it's frequently either her husband, romantic partner, or former romantic partner who is to blame. The reverse is also true. If a man is the victim of a crime, disappears, and is reported missing by his romantic partner, she may be responsible. So it was natural for the police to consider from the beginning whether Aaron may have been involved in whatever happened to Denise. Aaron looked even more suspicious to them since he was drugged when they showed up at his home, but they would give Aaron a chance to explain what happened. He might be totally innocent, but it was part of their job to consider whether he might be responsible for whatever happened to Denise. That would be standard procedure. Another possibility that the police had to consider was whether Denise had actually been kidnapped. Uh, Everything would really come down to what Aaron said to the police. Everything would turn around and Aaron would be released scot free if he told the police a story that made sense and yet explained why Denise had disappeared. So at least their initial suspicions were required by procedure and could be undone as soon as he explained what happened. When did the police start asking Aaron questions? After they settled in at the station, one of the detectives at the station began interviewing him and. Here was where Aaron began telling his story. He said that the previous evening, he and Denise had a good discussion about improving their relationship, and then they went to sleep. At around 3 a.m., they were woken up by a voice that said, Wake up. This is a robbery. We are not here to hurt you. Whoever it was that was speaking, the person they came to call The Voice, was trying to disguise the way he spoke by emphasizing each word. There was a bright light in the room with them, and two or three little red laser dots moving around like laser gun sights. There were several people in the room with them, at least three people, though they couldn't tell exactly how many, though they could tell that the two of them were outnumbered. And they eventually learned that the men were wearing wetsuits. They were dressed like underwater divers or frogmen. The voice told them to lay on their stomachs in the bed, and they did so. The voice then gave Denise zip ties and told her to use them to tie Aaron's hands and feet. At one point, the voice also referred to Aaron by name, so he knew who Aaron was. Denise was then directed to get into the closet without looking up at the intruders, and once she was there, she also was zip-tied. Aaron was then put in the closet on the floor next to her. Both of them had swimming goggles put over their eyes and the swim goggles had black tape on them so they couldn't see. They also put headsets on them and the headsets started to play recordings. At the beginning of the recording, there was a passage of soothing music that lasted for something like 30 seconds. But then there was a voice message that said they would not be hurt. The intruders were here purely for financial reasons they would be made to drink a mixture of NyQuil and the sedative diazepam, also known as Valium. A medical professional would come into the closet to check their vital signs, and if they didn't drink the mixture, they would receive an injection instead. The voice came in, took their blood pressure, and asked them about their medical histories and whether there were any medications uh, they were on that could cause a problem for them taking the NyQuil and diazepam mixture. They then drank the mixture, which is how Aaron ended up drugged. Eventually, a new recording played that said, We will ask
0: you a series of questions about bank accounts, passwords, and personal information about each other.
1: The voice also announced that he would take Denise into another room, which he referred to as the router room, where the computer router was, so he knew the layout of the house. They also could hear the intruders using walkie-talkies, and one of them turned on a taser, which they heard crackling, so they knew that it could be used against them. After being held in the router room for a while, Denise was then taken downstairs. During the questions that the recording said they would be asked, the voice told Aaron the street address where he grew up and where Aaron's parents still lived, so there was an implicit threat to them. According to Aaron, He asks me for the
0: passwords to my laptop and Wi-Fi, then for the passwords to my bank and credit card accounts, my email account, my phone, and for my social security number. I give it all to him.
1: But then a problem emerged concerning Aaron's former fiancée, Jennifer Jones.
0: Do Denise and Jennifer Jones look alike? I let out a long, visceral sigh. Yes, they both have long, blonde hair. This was intended for Jennifer Jones, he replies. We got the wrong intel. We need to decide what we are going to do next.
1: So the intruders apparently thought that they would be breaking in on Aaron and Jennifer Jones. They did not expect Denise to be in her place. And now they needed to figure out what they were going to do. Back to Aaron's story. Minutes later, I hear two
0: sets of footsteps Walking across the bathroom tile, someone kneels behind me. The voice whispers back over his shoulder, Are we doing Contingency
1: 1 or Contingency 2? Contingency 1 or Contingency 2? Aaron didn't hear what the answer was, but then he's told,
0: This is what we are going to do. We are going to take Denise for 48 hours. We decided to proceed with the operation because it will allow us to practice our protocols and there is enough financial benefit to us, he says. It will cost you $15,000 to get back Denise. Is that acceptable? Of course, he repeats. We are going to take Denise for 48 hours. Pay the money, get her back,
1: and move on with your lives. They asked Aaron what obligations he had over the next few days and if he was supposed to see anyone and if he had any past due bills that needed to be paid. He just said that he just needed to go to work. They asked him for the password to his router, but he didn't know it. They also play another recording for him and it uses the name of his former fiance Jennifer.
0: Aaron, we are going to take Jennifer for a 48-hour period. You will pay the amount provided by your contact to secure Jennifer's return. You may be wondering why this is happening to you. It may help to learn about our organization. We are a black market group hired to retrieve payments for personal and financial debts. Our group has secured payments across the country. This will be your burden to bear. Do not attempt to go to the police. We will always be watching you and your family. In one instance, a subject moved across the country in the belief we would not find her. Years later, we placed a pie on her doorstep, confirming to her that we know her location. You will be moved to your downstairs living room. A camera has been installed to monitor your movements. The camera's serial number has been filed off and authorities will not be able to trace it. Our cameras are highly sophisticated and work at high temperatures. Any attempt to change the temperature will result in harm to Jennifer. The blinds will be shut, and there will be markings that you must stay inside. If you do not follow our instructions, we will harm Jennifer. Hidden cameras have been installed throughout the house, except for your downstairs bathroom. You are allowed to use the bathroom for short periods. If a neighbor or family makes contact, you must make an excuse that does not raise suspicion. Any attempts to call authorities will result in harm to Jennifer. We will be watching you at the bank. If you attempt to alert the bank teller, we will kill Jennifer. Waiting will be the hardest part. You should entertain yourself by reading.
1: Stay strong for Jennifer and your family. Only now that they had Denise instead of Jennifer, all those things would apply to her. Soon, the voice told him,
0: I have a portable phone charger. I will place it on the kitchen counter. You will take it with you when you travel to the bank. Make sure your cell phone battery is fully charged. A dead cell phone is unacceptable. In the morning, you will call in sick to work. You will use Denise's phone to text her manager. State that she has a family emergency and will be gone for the week. We are going to take your laptop. After this is over, we will return it to factory settings and leave it somewhere where you can retrieve it. I am now going to carry you downstairs and place you on the couch. You must stay there until sunrise.
1: They then took Aaron downstairs and put him on the couch. They also gave him a blanket to keep him warm, and they put books downstairs, since they said he should read to keep his mind busy while Denise was in custody. The voice told him, I will leave the phones
0: and scissors on the counter. Stay on the couch until the morning. You can then cut yourself free. Your car will be left somewhere on the island. You will be provided the location to retrieve it.
1: They moved Denise's car out of the street so that they could get Aaron's car out of the driveway. Then they put Denise in the trunk of Aaron's car and drove it off. Aaron looked at the clock and it was 5 a.m. He fell asleep as a result of the drugs in his system, and when he woke up, He called his boss and left a voicemail saying he was sick. Uh, He could tell his speech was slurred in the voicemail. Then he texted Denise's boss using her cell phone saying that she had a family emergency that would keep her away from work all week. When he woke up again, he got a text from the intruders and they directed him to make email contact with them. Since they had his email passwords, They were using one of his own email accounts to communicate with him, so it looked like he was emailing himself. By email, they told him,
0: Denise is well. We have a short recorded message so stating that I will format and send at some point. Are you able to obtain a cash advance from your bank card? If so, cash in the amount of $8,500 from one account and cash in the amount of $8,500 from the other account would settle this matter. For your own safety, we do not wish to trigger the $10,000 reporting limit or other structured transaction regulations. You would be welcome to transfer what money you like back to the credit card. The drop would happen tomorrow night or early Wednesday morning, with release to follow quickly, provided all instructions are followed. Invertible, perceptible.
1: Aaron called his bank, but they said he could only get $3,500 in advance on his credit card. At first, Aaron simply complied with the intruders' uh, directions, for example, staying within the red tape marks they had put on the floor, but he began to suspect that something was wrong with the camera they had installed. They had told him that it wouldn't make the dung-dung-dung noise once it was fully set up, but it kept making that noise whenever he stood up, so he suspected it wasn't set up correctly and might not be transmitting imagery to them. He then decided to call his brother, who was an FBI agent, and ask for advice. His brother told him to ignore what the intruders had said and to call the police immediately. He then dialed 911, bringing us up to where we started. It was 1.54 in the afternoon. They ended up keeping Aaron at the station overnight, and he was questioned on and off for 18 hours. During the night, a little before 3 a.m. California time, there was an airplane crash in the French Alps. A plane operated by the discount airline Germanwings crashed, killing 150 people. It was later determined that the cause of the crash was suicide by the co-pilot, who locked the pilot out of the cockpit. This crash will play a small role in our story today, so remember it. Once Aaron had been interviewed at the police station, what did the authorities do? One thing was to bring in the FBI because the FBI handles kidnapping cases. They also launched a search of the area looking for Denise either alive or dead. Here's news footage from that day.
3: Hi, everyone. I'm Frank Malico. Michelle has the afternoon off. The very latest on the plane crash coming up in a moment. But first, search crews and cadaver dogs are combing through the marshland of Mare Island this afternoon looking for a missing woman. Police
1: believe she may have been abducted and possibly now held for ransom. And now the FBI has stepped in to investigate. KPX 5 reporter Ryan Takeo joins us live in Vallejo. And
3: Ryan, do police have any leads in the case?
4: No, not really. And if they do have any leads, they're not very forthcoming about those. In the last half hour, I talked to Denise Huskins' dad. He just came up from L.A. It was really a heartbreaking interview. My first question wasn't really even a question. I was just asking him about his daughter. Tell me a little bit about your daughter, who's now missing. Tell me about Denise. Michael Huskins cannot believe his 30-year-old daughter, Denise, is missing. He got the call from Vallejo Police yesterday and flew up from L.A. this morning. This
1: is overwhelming to me. I mean, I, I don't understand it. I I can't. That's the, that's the hard part is I don't understand what's going on. Denise's father was understandably upset. Having your daughter taken like this would be a horrifying experience for any parent. At least the police were taking the kidnapping seriously and searching for Denise not just focusing on Aaron. Well, that's what you'd think, and the police certainly wanted it to look in public like they were taking the kidnapping seriously. Originally, Aaron had said they wanted $15,000 for Denise's return, but by email the next morning, they had said that they wanted two payments of $8,500, which would be 17,000 in total. Aaron had told them this, but had told the police this. But notice what the anchor said about the kidnapping situation.
3: Search crews and cadaver dogs are combing through the marshland of Mare Island this afternoon looking for a missing woman.
1: Police believe she may have been abducted and possibly now held for ransom. So they're searching out in marshy wilderness areas on the island. They're using cadaver dogs. Denise may have been abducted and possibly held for ransom. Here's another clip from a local TV station. It begins with Lieutenant Kenny Park of the Vallejo Police speaking at a press conference.
5: I can promise you that the police department working in partnership with the other law enforcement agencies, we're doing everything that we can and then some to ensure her safe return.
3: That search continues for the Vallejo woman who disappeared yesterday. Police say 29-year-old Denise Huskins was possibly kidnapped for ransom.
5: There are still a lot of questions in this case. We can't go into specifics about the ransom, but all I can tell you is the original witness indicated that a ransom demand was made. Their biggest question is why Huskins' boyfriend, whom neighbors and family identify as Aaron Quinn, waited hours to call police.
1: And Aaron did wait hours. According to him, Denise was abducted at 5 a.m., but he didn't call 911 until right before 2 p.m., which was seven hours after the kidnappers had left.
0: This doesn't sound like the police were thinking this was a kidnapping. It sounds like they think Denise is dead and that the kidnapping for ransom story may not have been real.
1: That's exactly what they thought. They weren't telling the press this, but the previous day when they were interviewing Aaron, they concluded that something happened, that Denise ended up dead, and that he made up the kidnapping story. Here's part of the interview with Aaron being conducted by Officer Matt Mustard. Detective Mustard is asking Aaron about his relationship with his former fiancé and what happened when Denise discovered that, he's been, that he'd been texting with her.
2: He had been talking my ex, at that time, I am still dating Denise tension and the relationship Is she mad? Uh, I mean, she's upset. Concerned? Hey. Is she cheating? No, well, she felt that emotionally that was, uh, that was cheating in some sense. I mean, did she, like, discover something? Well, I mean, was she, um, like, going through your phone and, like, you know, through, what the hell is this? Going through my phone. What's your she what her? She's not talking say? Okay. What is that? Um, that's me. I still care. I want to work things through. There.
1: But afterward, Detective Mustard told Aaron that he did not buy Aaron's story at all, that he did not think that frogmen, that is, men in wetsuits, were responsible. The story you're telling here,
2: I'm buying it all. You've got to think about how this is all going to play out. Now, think about I'm telling you what it to me. There ain't no frogmen came into your house. do will be dressed in wetsuits or that it didn't happen. I don't think this happened intentionally. I think something happened, accidental, and you you got to the point you reacted the way that you did and you had to come up with a story.
1: Detective Mustard said he believed that Aaron killed Denise accidentally and invented the kidnapping story in a panic. He compared the situation to that of Lady Lacey Peterson, who had been murdered in Modesto, California, in 2002. It led to a major media sensation and many people concluded that her husband, Scott Peterson, had killed her and then totally lied about it afterwards. Detective Mustard tells Aaron people will think the same thing about him.
2: Lacey Peterson, Scott, whatever the hell his name was. Did you watch that story in the public account of, of You look at that and you go, that dude's a lion's son of a bitch. That's what people look at you. Frogman obviously didn't do it. So who did it now? Well, it's the guy that I've been sitting here talking to tonight. So now I get out my puzzle pieces and I start figuring out, okay, how do I make it so you look like a monster? I don't want to do that. Ultimately, I'm looking for the truth. I'm looking for a live Denise. I'm looking for dead Denise.
1: So he was not looking for a live Denise, but a dead Denise. He threatened Aaron that he would try to make him look like a monster if he didn't tell what really happened. And he said that he was prepared to tell Denise's family that she was dead.
2: You want me to go tell her family that she's dead? Because that's what I'm prepared to do. I'm gonna go tell them that I'm not looking for alive Denise. I'm looking for dead Denise.
0: It did feel like I am some character in this crime drama. I'm like in a movie. I'm living a nightmare right now. There's blood in your house. There's blood yeah. Okay.
1: Now Aaron had not mentioned any blood being drawn during the kidnapping. So how did the blood get there? The blood Detective Mustard was referring to was a spot of blood found on the bed, which had no bedspread and no comforter on it. Upon reflection, Aaron concluded that the blood must have been from when he cut himself playing basketball a few weeks ago, and then the scab must have broken open while he was asleep. But the police suspected it was Denise's blood. Furthermore, according to Detective Mustard,
0: Okay, Mustard says, rubbing the back of his head and neck. I can tell you, there ain't been no other additional communication to you on a ransom demand. No one is trying
1: to reach out to you. And Mustard thought that if Denise really had been kidnapped, then the kidnappers should have been reaching out to try to get their ransom. Aaron said that he didn't hurt Denise, and that they could check his records to see that he wasn't a violent person.
0: I agree with you, he says. You don't have a record, which makes me believe you reacted to a situation, that you didn't plan this. Something happened and you were trying to figure out what to do. Let's play this through for a minute, Mustard says. Sit in this chair for a minute, think it through, listen to me. Intruders come in, right? Intruders hurt, kill, damage, defame, whatever, Denise. Do you think they take her? No, they leave. And they probably kill you too, right? why then do I not find Denise in the home? It makes me think, I don't find Denise in the home because the story doesn't fit. There ain't going to be no frogman as the suspect, he says, nodding his head. There ain't going to be one guy, it's going to be you. If something bad happened and you overreacted, that's a lot different from being a monster.
1: Now, one of the things the officers had noticed when they searched Aaron's house was that it had a particular smell, like. The carpets had been freshly cleaned or something. So Detective Mustard asked, Did you vacuum your carpets today? No.
0: Did you clean your carpets today? No. Did you do any cleanup in relation to chemical cleanup today? No. Did you know the comforter and blanket are missing off your bed? That's what the other officer told me. Why do you take a comforter and blanket off a bed? Why do you do that? to take a body. I assume that's
1: what you're getting at.
0: Well, how's Frogman going to take the body? Frogman is going to take the body and lift it over his shoulder and take it. You don't need to take in the evidence of the bedspread and the blanket. You know why the monster does that? Because he sees stuff on it and he says, holy blank, I need to get rid of it. It's obvious to me whatever happened,
1: happened in that bedroom. Detective Mustard later summarized his views this way.
0: Based on my past experience investigating crime, I found it implausible that unknown persons wearing scuba gear would break into the home through unknown means in the middle of the night with headphones, soothing music, and pre recorded instructions. That they would drug their victims and check their blood pressure. That they would bring Mr. Quinn downstairs with blankets and books for the night. That they would set up a fake camera fooling a smart and educated man like Mr. Quinn for hours that they would move Ms. Huskins' car from the driveway so that they could abduct her in Mr. Quinn's car, and that, after going to such elaborate lengths, that they would demand such a small
1: ransom. Because they had asked for only $17,000, which is a rather smaller amount to risk going to jail for years over, especially if split between two kidnappers, each of whom would only get $8,500. As one commentator later said,
4: split between two kidnappers. That's a little over $4,000 a piece. Most of us could get an advance on our MasterCard without the chance of going to prison for 30 years.
1: Detective Mustard then asked Aaron to take a lie detector test. Aaron said yes, and they brought in Special Agent Peter French of the FBI. So, yes, the agents working the case were French and Mustard. Go figure. Aaron took his polygraph test at 2 a.m. and this is what happened afterwards.
2: All right, Aaron. You know, there's no question in my mind that you failed this test, and you failed it miserably. It's not even close. I did not do anything. Okay, I did. I, I'm pretty sure. Maybe you did. Maybe I you didn't, didn't do. Maybe you didn't do, do anything. anything. Yeah. Maybe, maybe she something happened to her that you didn't plan. Maybe she, I don't know. You tell me. I, But it can't start with three guys showing up at the house, taking her away. That's not what happened. You know where she is. I don't know
1: where she is. Agent French also told him,
0: I'm absolutely convinced that something you did not plan happened. Something bad happened to Denise and you got scared. Now listen, the FBI has dealt with kidnapping for ransom. Legitimate kidnapping for ransom. And this doesn't even pass the smell test, okay? It was an accident, wasn't it? Just acknowledge it was an accident.
1: But after speaking with Agent French and being unable to convince him, Aaron finally made a decision.
2: What's I guess I need a lawyer. We're done.
1: Agent French was not happy about this, and he left the interview room. Instead of immediately sending for a lawyer, though, the authorities decided to let Aaron's brother, Ethan, visit him. Ethan was also an FBI agent, and perhaps they thought he could talk some sense into Aaron. However, Aaron maintained his innocence to Ethan.
2: Telling the truth. I know it's a crazy thing.
1: At this point, it was 6 a.m. on March 24th, 25 hours since the time Aaron claimed that Denise had been kidnapped. When Ethan left, he said this.
0: I don't know if they're going to let me back in. I'm going to get you an attorney. You don't have to speak with them
1: anymore unless there's something you forgot that could help them find Denise. So Ethan started searching for a local criminal defense attorney who could help with Aaron's case. He ended up finding a man named Daniel Rousseau, who was from New York and had a bit of New York attitude about him. It was still early in the morning, but Rousseau came down to the police station. And I say, okay, uh, is he under arrest? Well, if he's not under arrest, it's time to say goodnight, Gracie. And then I took Aaron back to the office and then he told me the whole story. And it was hard to believe. So Rousseau got Aaron out of the police station. But when he heard the story about the frogman who had kidnapped Denise, asking for a very small ransom with an extremely detailed plan involving cameras and tape on the floor with kidnappers who were incredibly polite, providing Aaron with a blanket and books to read, and who repeatedly framed their demands as requests and asked if the requests were acceptable to Aaron instead of just telling him what he was going to have to do. Even Aaron's own lawyer had trouble believing the story, and Rousseau warned Aaron that he's going to have trouble with the Vallejo Police Department. Then, something very surprising happened. The Vallejo police were convinced that Denise was dead and that Aaron had killed her. Uh, They were using cadaver dogs to search for her body in the marshes on the island. And then across the bay in San Francisco, a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle named Henry Lee got an email. The email comes from one of Aaron's email addresses, which Aaron claimed the kidnappers had access to, and the email contains a recording of Denise's voice. Okay, I'm
2: going to be match. Otherwise, i my first concert with Bethany and her mom. Took uh, a to
6: that religion. Earlier today, there was a plane crash in the Alps. 150
1: people died. Now, that was a bit hard to hear. So here is what Denise said.
6: Okay, um, my name is Denise Huskins. I'm kidnapped. Otherwise, I'm fine. My first concert was with Bethany and her mom to Blink-182 and Bad Religion. Earlier today, there was a plane crash in the Alps. 150 people died. So this was
1: what is known as a proof-of-life recording. In case they had trouble recognizing her voice, given the poor sound quality, they had Denise reveal something that nobody but close friends or family would know, which is what the first concert she went to see was. By the way, for me, that was the Atlanta rhythm section. And to prove that she's still alive, they had to refer to the German wing's plane crash in the Alps, which had only happened that day, meaning that the recording had to be made that day the day after she was kidnapped, because deep fakes weren't yet a big thing then. This proved that Denise was still alive, or at least that she had been alive at the time the recording was made, and that meant that Aaron did not kill her, which was a huge relief to him to have proof of that. The police had Aaron come back to the station to identify the voice, which he did, and then they had him look at his cell phone, which the police had kept it as evidence to see if there were any messages from the kidnappers on it. When Aaron looked at the phone, one of Rousseau's paralegals noticed that it was in airplane mode, which meant that someone at the Vallejo police had put it in airplane mode. The phone thus had not been connected to the phone company's wireless network it would not receive any emails, text messages, phone calls, or voicemails. Rather than leave it on in case the kidnappers tried to make contact to ransom Denise, the Vallejo police had effectively turned the phone off and severed any chance of communicating with the kidnappers during the crucial early hours of the kidnapping. When they then took the phone out of airplane mode and let it connect to the wireless network, it exploded with new messages, and the voicemail on the phone completely filled up, so there was no room for more voicemail. When they listened to the messages that were from the unknown numbers, some of them just contained silence, which could have been from the kidnappers. They then had Aaron log into one of his email accounts on the laptop, even though the police already had the password for it, and dated the previous night when Aaron was at the station. There was an email at 7.46 p.m., which said,
0: We will call you at about 9 p.m. on your mobile phone. Your liaison will be the same contact as during the acquisition phase. Please
1: verify that you have received this message. Then, around half an hour later, at 8.13 p.m., there was another message that read, We are waiting on your acknowledgement. And Aaron could tell that the first of these messages had already been opened. Someone at Vallejo PD had read the kidnappers reaching out, even though the previous evening Detective Mustard had told Aaron that nobody tried to contact him and, Nobody had responded to either of these messages from the kidnappers. It was now 11 p.m. on Tuesday the 24th, so the emails had gone unanswered for 26 hours due to the incompetence of the Vallejo Police Department. One of the FBI agents, who happens to be a hostage negotiator, then directs Aaron to reply to the email and he dictates a message to send back to the kidnappers. They didn't hear back from the kidnappers, but the next day, Wednesday, March 25th, Denise's father, Mike Huskins, got a message on his cell phone. You'll recall that Mike Huskins had come up to Vallejo. We heard him interviewed by one of the local TV stations when he choked up and had difficulty answering when asked what his daughter was like. So on the second day after Denise vanished, Mike Huskins got a voicemail. It was from Denise, and she said that she had just been released. She had been to her mother's house, which she found empty since her mother had gone to Vallejo, and now she was on her way to her father's apartment. Mike immediately called 911 and asked to be connected to the police in Huntington Beach, California, where he lived. Frustrated by the bureaucracy, as you do, he yelled at them to get the Huntington Beach police over to his apartment as soon as possible. Now, here's the thing. Huntington Beach is in Orange County, California. It's in Southern California between Los Angeles and San Diego, whereas Vallejo is in the Bay Area up north by San Francisco. Huntington Beach is about 425 miles from where Denise was kidnapped. Without traffic, it's a six and a half hour drive by car. So Denise had shown up a truly extraordinary distance from where she disappeared.
3: It's here at her father's apartment in Huntington Beach, California, that Denise Huskins turned up on Wednesday. She says her kidnappers dropped her off nearby. She also says she didn't know her abductors and claims she was blindfolded and gagged for part of the ordeal.
1: The Huntington Beach police quickly showed up at Mike's apartment building where they found Denise in the apartment of one of her father's neighbors. Here's some recorded audio from the initial conversation she had with the Huntington Beach police at the apartment of the neighbor.
2: Where did they drop you up here? Down Utah. So I noticed you have obviously a purse and your jacket. How did you get that stuff? They, they brought it with me. They knew that it was nice stuff. I um, never okay. asked him to let you go. I asked him if he was going to hurt me. I asked him if he was going to kill me. Um, he said there was no reason for that. Were you still assaulted or anything on that during this? No. They didn't touch you or do anything to you against your will? No. It's weird because, with all things considered, it treated me really nicely. Yeah. Our detectives are going to have to talk to you. Uh, yeah, I wanted to see if what about talking. With with a lawyer first.
1: So very quickly, Denise concluded that she needed a lawyer and wanted to speak to one before she spoke with Huntington Beach police detectives. Up in Vallejo, the police were sounding optimistic after her reappearance in Southern California. Here's Lieutenant Kenny Park again.
5: We're confident that we're going to be able to piece together this puzzle and have a better picture of what really occurred, how it occurred, and when it occurred
1: once we'd speak to Miss Huskins. However, they didn't get a chance to talk to her. Denise apparently determined that the Vallejo police were hostile towards her and she decided to speak only through her lawyer. She also decided to make her own way back up to the Bay Area and she and her family stopped talking with the police. As a result, the Vallejo police held another press conference in which they said,
5: As of right now, We have not heard from Ms. Huskins, and we are no longer in
1: contact with any of the family members.
5: Vallejo police have had it.
1: It's disappointing. It's disheartening. And the press itself was starting to go after Denise.
0: Did this 29-year-old woman fake her own disappearance? Police are outraged. Huskins can be seen in this video hiding under a black hoodie. And now she's gone again, refusing to speak to police and hiding out at an undisclosed
1: location. Now she and her boyfriend could face criminal charges. So Denise and Aaron could face criminal charges for wasting the police's time. It was at this point that the news media began referring to Denise Huskins as a real-life Gone Girl. Gone Girl was a movie that had come out in 2014 It starred Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike. It had come out just six months earlier. It was a huge blockbuster success, earning $370 million at the box office. And it had certain similarities to the current situation. I won't say what those similarities are, because it's a really enthralling movie, and I I don't want to spoil it for those who haven't seen it. But the press started incessantly referring to this as the Gone Girl case. And some even wondered if Aaron and Denise may have been inspired to hoax the police as a result of watching the movie. In fact, people even noted that Denise and the actress from the movie, Rosalind Pike, looked alike. So they were very focused on the similarities between the two situations.
0: Why did the police so quickly conclude that Aaron and Denise had hoaxed her disappearance and alleged kidnapping?
1: It just seems so unbelievable. Uh, first, Aaron calls the police while he's spaced out under the influence of some kind of drugs. Then he tells them a crazy story about guys in wetsuits invading his home and kidnapping Denise. They have a really complex plan they're executing with security cameras and drug cocktails and tape on the floor. Uh, they bizarrely they're bizarrely polite and provide Aaron with a blanket and books from upstairs to pass the time when they issue demands, they strangely ask, is this acceptable? All of the emails they send are coming from Aaron's own email addresses. They ask for a bizarrely small amount of ransom to give Denise back. Then they return Denise two days later without any ransom being paid, which is very surprising for kidnappers to return the victim with no payments having been made. And they take Denise on a a six-and-a-half-hour road trip to release her 400 miles away, and they obligingly release her within a few blocks of her mother's house in Southern California. Gone Girl came out six months earlier and looked like it inspired what Aaron and Denise did, and Denise even looks like the actress from Gone Girl. So this scenario is just laced with extreme improbabilities and they conclude that it was all a hoax that Aaron and Denise had cooked up. Denise, wearing a black hoodie to shield herself from public view, also didn't help her. Neither did the fact that she and her family broke contact with the police, the fact that she immediately dropped off the radar and the police didn't know where she was, and the fact she immediately got a lawyer.
3: Well, Robin Edie, it's just the latest twist in this case. It started out as a kidnapping for ransom in Vallejo, then the discovery that Huskins was alive and well in Southern California. Here's the first video we saw of Huskins today in the hoodie, alive and well, being escorted by police. Her relatives visibly relieved that she was okay today. And then earlier tonight, the Vallejo Police Department released a statement saying
1: Huskins' disappearance was an orchestrated event and not a kidnapping. The police also revealed that FBI. FBI agents were preparing to fly Huskins back to Northern California where they could interview her about her ordeal. Only problem, now they cannot locate Huskins and they say she has also retained a lawyer. And just minutes ago, the Vallejo police held a news conference about the latest developments and had this to say about the couple.
5: If you can imagine devoting all of our resources 24 hours a day on what will I will, I will uh, classify as a wild goose chase. It's a tremendous loss. It's disappointing. It's disheartening, and the fact that we've essentially wasted all of these resources for really nothing is upsetting. I really appreciate everybody taking the opportunity to coming out here in such short notice. So we really appreciate it. First and foremost, before we go any further, I would like to offer an apology for us being so guarded with our investigative information. Please understand that it is a necessary evil, and our primary focus has always been the safety of the members of our community. So, it's confirmed that Mr. Aaron Quinn and Ms. Denise Hoskins are in a dating relationship. And from this point forward, I will not refer to them as a victim or a witness. The statement that Mr. Quinn provided was such an incredible story, we initially had a hard time believing it, And, upon further investigation, we were not able to substantiate any of the things like was saying. That is a tremendous amount of resources that in my opinion was wasted. But I can tell you in the grand scheme of things, Mr. Quinn and Ms. Huskins has plundered valuable resources away from our community and has taken the focus away from the true victims of our community. It is Mr. Quinn and Ms. Huskins that owes this community an apology. I can tell you that our investigation has concluded that none of the claims has been substantiated, and I can go. I can go one step further to say this: that this was not a random act. At the conclusion of the investigation, if you feel that there is sufficient evidence to move forward, we will be we will, will be requesting criminal charges, even from the state or the federal level.
1: So the Vallejo police were now talking about having criminal charges filed against Aaron and Denise because. The reason they could be in hot water criminally is because it's against the law to lie to the
3: police. You can't make a false report. You can't have a fake kidnapping. It turns the entire community upside down, and it is a crime.
1: And then things got even worse for Aaron and Denise. And before we find out how they got worse, I'd like
0: to stop here take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible including Nicola E., Stephen G., Teresa P., Marna J., and James W. Their generous donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest and you can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Great Lakes Customs Law, helping importers and individuals with seizures, penalties, and compliance with U.S. Customs Matters throughout the United States. Visit GreatLakesCustomsLaw.com. And buy Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. So, Jimmy, what happened that made Aaron and Denise's situation
1: even worse? Well, the matter was receiving a lot of attention in the press, and Denise and Aaron's reputations were being totally trashed.
4: Breaking news, we have just confirmed that this woman's kidnap for ransom story is all a hoax. Like
5: Amy Dunn, Denise's kidnapping was all a hoax.
2: Was an orchestrated
1: event and not a kidnapping.
5: Her story started to fall apart. It was all a hoax. Is Huskins a real-life gone girl like the movie?
1: And at this point, the police began receiving messages that claimed to be from the kidnappers. More specifically, reporter Henry Lee of the San Francisco Chronicle and Lieutenant Park of Vallejo PD started receiving emails claiming to come from the kidnappers. The first email arrived on Thursday, March 26, the day after Denise reappeared in Huntington Beach, and the emails continued until Tuesday, March 31st, just over a week after she was reported missing. Now, you'd think that this would be a good thing as it would confirm the kidnappers were real, but that's not what happened because the emails just did not sound credible at all. For example, the kidnappers stated, We are a group of what I
0: suppose you would call professional thieves, though we have not been doing it that long and don't identify ourselves as such. We are more than two and fewer than eight in number. All but one of us hold at least bachelor's degrees. Some of us have a tech background and are very good at overcoming electronic anti-theft measures, stealing late model cars, and reconfiguring systems as necessary to make the vehicle saleable in a foreign market. At some point, we decided that although auto theft payout was decent, we did not want to do that for our whole lives. Instead, we wanted something with a high payout that we only had to do once or a few times. We did not want to stay thieves or criminals forever. What we really wanted was to complete one or two big jobs and then to do whatever we felt like for the rest of our lives. We settled on kidnapping and ransom. The redacted operation was meant to be a test of methods that would be used later on a higher net worth target in an environment that was familiar to us and somewhat controlled. There was also a link to someone we thought was resident there, but turned out not to be. The bottom line, inconceivable as it sounds given what we have done, is that we didn't really want to hurt anyone. We are young adults, fairly recent college graduates, and up until now this was a bit like a game or movie adventure. We fancied ourselves a sort of Ocean's Eleven, gentlemen criminals who only took stuff that was insured from people who could afford it.
1: Ocean's Eleven is a movie that originally came out in 1960. It starred the Rat Pack, uh, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., etc. And it was remade in 2001 with a new cast featuring George Clooney, Matt Damon, and Brad Pitt. It's a caper movie in which a bunch of upscale gentleman criminals pull off a heist. And if the kidnappers were real, the fact that they fancied themselves like the suave, stylish Ocean's Eleven gang says something about their egos. But people weren't convinced at all that the kidnappers were real. They sounded really implausible. For example, they were at pains to paint themselves in a good light. They said that they had been inside many houses on Mare Island, but they didn't want to unduly alarm Mare Island residents by the thought that they had been in their homes. So they went on at length about the types of homes they did not enter due to their ethical code.
0: We entered many homes on Mare Island. I will start by saying which we did not enter. If you had minor children living with you, we were not in your home. It is hard to gauge age sometimes, but if your son and or daughter appeared to be under 18, then this should be an accurate statement. If we saw toys and such in the yard, we didn't even come close. If you have a medium to large dog, we did not go in your home, unless perhaps it was away from the property during a vacation. If you appear to be 55 or older, we did not go into your home. If it was apparent that you are a veteran, retired military, or have some other military connection, we did not go into your home.
1: So, this unusually conscientious group of criminals would not enter the homes of people with children, or large dogs, or of senior citizens, or of anyone who was in the military, had ever been in the military, or had a military connection. Extraordinarily conscientious home invaders. They also were very conscientious about the people they planned on kidnapping. If we had not already... We
0: would then assess the target's financial situation and what they could afford to pay for
1: ransom without completely knocking their lives off track. So they didn't want to ruin people's finances by kidnapping them. They wanted to be conscientious about only taking the amount of money that people could afford to lose. Now, at this point, I need to explain a couple of terms. We're reading from the emails as they were later released in court documents by the FBI. And in those documents, Aaron's and Denise's names have been censored for privacy reasons. Aaron is called Victim M, since he's male, and Denise is called Victim F, since she's female. So that explains the title of this episode. Victim F is Denise Huskins. And the alleged kidnappers were very taken by Denise. They speak of themselves developing a kind of reverse Stockholm Syndrome with her
0: the operation went terribly wrong. After making the jump from property crime to this, we feel deep remorse and horribly regret our slide into criminality. In particular, we are mortified of the impact it has had on victim F. In what I suppose would be a case of reverse Stockholm Syndrome, we, and particularly the one in charge of holding her during the operation, were very impressed with the strength she showed and who she was as we passed the time talking to her. We are criminals, I suppose, but we have consciences, and seeing the impact of our actions on someone deeply affected
1: us and caused us to reconsider our lives. So they feel really bad for what they did to Denise, and she convinced them to mend their evil ways.
0: The horrifying reality of what we had become and what we were doing did not set in until being confronted directly with Victim F's suffering and humanity we now feel like the pieces of blank we have become, and though we don't have the courage to turn ourselves in and spend the rest of our lives in prison, we will not stand by and see the life of a really good person ruined. We dropped Miss Victim F off at her home in Huntington Beach because it was more or less equidistant to the Bay Area, and because we were horrified at what we had done and wanted her to have family and close friends around to help her recover rather than spending hours getting debriefed by police. They also issued a profound apology to Denise. The only other thing we ask in return is that you pass a message to Ms. Victim F for us. We do not know how to reliably reach her. Tell her again that we are unspeakably sorry and ashamed for what happened, including the matter resulting from an argument within the team. Tell her that all threats against her and her family are lifted and she is safe. Tell her we will come forward and try our best to correct the situation.
1: As far as correcting the situation in which the Vallejo Police Department was accusing Aaron and Denise of hoaxing, the alleged kidnappers say this.
0: What galvanized us was the travesty that is the police department's response to Ms. Victim F. Ms. Victim F was absolutely kidnapped. We did it. We will provide incontrovertible proof of that we will not turn ourselves in nor reveal our identities. Even after we come out, we don't think there will be any link allowing the police to identify us. But it is still risky, and as things stand now, we could apparently get away with anything. We would rather take the chance of revealing the truth than live in a world where someone like Victim F is victimized
1: again and again. So rather than live in a world where someone as awesome as Denise could be victimized again. They'd rather take the risk of getting caught by speaking out on her behalf. On Saturday, March 28th, Kenny Park received an email that was 10,000 words and 21 pages long, so it takes takes about an hour to read. Whoever wrote it decided that it would bolster the kidnappers' credibility if they gave an extensive history of their group which they said had three core members, how their auto theft activities worked, and how they shifted to kidnapping for ransom. Most of the 10,000 words is taken up with describing all that, but they also cover how the operation against Aaron and Denise went down. And they're still very concerned about the welfare of Denise and Aaron.
0: We were dismayed, further ashamed, and truly dumbfounded that when Mr. Victim M and Ms. Victim F sought help from the police, the police turned against the victims, accused them of fabrication, and told Mr. Victim M and Ms. Victim F they would be prosecuted and fined. It was also disturbing how many journalists cast the victims in a negative light. Reports never directly stated that Mr. Victim M and Ms. Victim F were attention-seeking wackos who made it all up, but they conveyed mostly the information that would lead readers and viewers to this conclusion. Like the police, certain journalists crucified the victims long before there
1: was enough information to do so. So, shame on the police, and shame on the press. And how dare you threaten Aaron and Denise with criminal prosecution?
0: We cannot stand to see two good people thrown under the bus by the police and media when Ms. Victim F and Mr. Victim M should have received only support and sympathy. We are responsible for the victim's suffering, and the least we can do is come forward to prove they are not lying. Over the course of the crime, we realized what we had become and developed deep remorse for the harm we inflicted. We are haunted by the grace and fortitude Ms. Victim F displayed throughout her ordeal and by her expressions of concern for her family and patients, even while she was tied up in the dark wondering whether she would live until the next day. We would rather risk giving the police information that could lead them to catch us than live in a world where two fine people like Mr. Victim M and Ms. Victim F could suffer a horrible crime and then have their lives further ruined by the response to
1: it. All attention should be on the victims, their ordeal, and their recovery. They also continue to credit Denise for turning their lives around.
0: I do not like to admit it, but in all likelihood it would have continued if things had gone differently that night and if victim M and especially victim F had been less uncommonly good people. By the strength of her character, Miss Victim F more or less single-handedly broke up a professional kidnapping and ransom ring before it got off the ground. And they attribute this
1: turnaround
0: to God. We obviously have not been good Christians. But for my part, I believe God placed Ms. Victim F in our path to prevent us from inflicting even greater harms on the world, and He further tested her with the police and media response in order to root out our last shreds of humanity, to humble and shame us into forever abandoning our horrific plans, and to confess the truth of what happened and what we did. I do not know whether Ms. Victim F even believes in God, but whatever religion she may or may not hold he has undoubtedly worked through her. And they continue to do penance
1: for their former evil ways.
0: What we did was evil and shameful, period. The only point of explaining is to make the police and the public believe the victims so their nightmare can end and they can heal and get on with their lives. All indications are that Ms. Victim F and Mr. Victim M are two really great people who deserve none of this. We are obviously not the ones who can help with their recovery, but we certainly hope the police and others will now see to it that they are supported unequivocally
1: and fully. They conclude this 10,000-word email with this statement. May God have mercy on us. We expect none from you. Unfortunately, the police did not believe that this communication came from actual kidnappers. Normally, kidnappers don't do anything Anything like this. And so they took no action. And two days later, on Monday, March 30th, Kenny Park got a new and much more angry email. It is inconceivable to
0: us that the air has not been cleared concerning Ms. Victim F's victimization. The Vallejo Police Department has 24 hours to issue a full and unequivocal apology, one that includes the words, We were wrong, or something very close to them. No mealy-mouthed, it appears we may have initially misassessed the available evidence due to the complex and bizarre nature of the crime and the unusual behavior of the victims in delaying their reports and retaining attorneys instead of working directly with police. It will be a full apology, with zero insinuation, that the victims had any role whatsoever in creating their predicament. At this point, the police have more than enough corroborative information to realize that they were wrong. And yet, you still allow Ms. Victim F to be portrayed as an unstable hoaxer.
1: So, the kidnappers were now demanding that the police publicly apologize to the victims. They did, however, realize that the police might not think these emails were fake, and that Aaron and Denise might be sending them to try to force the police into apologizing to them. So, they addressed that issue and said, if you still think this is some sort of an
0: inside job, for example, because we seem to have information that only people in the victim's circle have, I think I mentioned that we've broken into a house or two, and that we're pretty good with
1: computers. So yeah, we're really good with computers, and we use spyware, and that's how we know stuff only people close to Aaron and Denise would know. This isn't Aaron and Denise sending you all these emails at all. Also, they threaten to dox Lieutenant Park and publish his private information if he doesn't apologize.
0: That reminds me, since the victims and their families have had the police and press and public up in their business for days, I think it is only appropriate, Mr. Park, if the public has as much information about you, in case they'd like to get in touch and let you know what they think about your victim blaming and your failure to do the right thing and issue a full apology when you had the chance.
1: They also made a more general threat.
0: I have spent time doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. If you force it, I will do the wrong thing for the right reasons. No, not another kidnapping. You'll see. There will be a lag before you find out, but after 24 hours, it will be in motion if there is no full apology. I, slash we, may be the direct agent of harm, but it will be made crystal clear that the Vallejo Police Department and you, Mr. Park, had every opportunity to stop it. You have more than enough information at this point to do the right thing and issue an apology to the victims. You have until noon tomorrow to make that happen. Of
1: course, this was reported in the press.
5: Police have said that Denise Huskins'
6: kidnapping was all a hoax. But now those alleged kidnappers are threatening violence against the police if they don't apologize for calling it a hoax. Anna Coyman joins us live
5: in the studio with the bizarre messages. Anna? Bizarre to say to Elise Ainsley. Good morning and good morning to all of you at home. Hoax or not, those anonymous emails sent to two newspapers say the kidnapping was absolutely real. The abductors claim they drilled into the woman's window and used squirt guns that looked like real guns to take Huskins away. Even stranger, the emails say it was a practice run for kidnapping future high-profile victims. The kidnappers even compared themselves to the cast of Ocean's Eleven. Huskins' attorney says the kidnappers then sent an email, an apology email saying they felt terrible when they discovered she wasn't the intended target and wanted to clear her name. The kidnappers told Vallejo police to apologize by noon yesterday or they would be harmed. So far, nothing has happened. Now, the Sanford Francisco Chronicle is reporting they received
4: another letter from the alleged kidnappers yesterday. That one allegedly making threats against police if they don't apologize to Huskins by this afternoon. A lot of
6: really unusual twists in this story. Kidnappers who are sympathetic toward the person that they allegedly. Well, okay. Apparently they don't like people being falsely accused. They don't like people being falsely accused. They want to set the record straight. It's a strange one. Thank you, Mara. Mm Well,
1: noon on Tuesday the 31st came and went with no apology from the police. And a little before 1 p.m., Kenny Park got a new email that began.
0: This is the last message we, I, will transmit for at least several months. First, it was wrong to issue an ultimatum. We will not attempt any sort of further damage or harm. To do otherwise would disregard and dishonor the one positive thing we learned from this that it is not some game and real humans are involved. Police do not deserve to be targeted, even ones who make poor calls about how to treat victims, and certainly innocent civilians do not deserve to be in harm's way, nor to have their property harmed, nor even to have their sense of security eroded. We will break
1: no more laws. So, yeah, maybe we went too far with that whole ultimatum thing yesterday. Sorry about that. Uh, We won't dox you or be breaking any more laws, so the public doesn't need to worry. Our bad. What the alleged kidnappers said they would do instead is publish their side of the story on the web at noon on Wednesday, April 1st. We will directly publish information
0: about what happened on the internet tomorrow at 12 p.m. if no statements are made fully exonerating the victims. If Vallejo PD would like to get out ahead of the story, then it may make a statement and do so. The statement only needs to exonerate the victims. It does not need to mention us nor that they, we wish them to be cleared. You can simply say you have new information indicating the victims have in fact suffered a terrible ordeal, and that you are focusing all resources on bringing to justice those responsible for the horrific crime, something to that effect. We really don't want to be part of the story. But if it is not put out there in a way making it clear the victims were wrongly accused, then we will do what we
1: can to rectify it directly. So please don't mention us and whatever you say, but please do publish a statement exonerating Aaron and Denise. And if you don't, we'll publish our own statement with stuff to exonerate them. The kidnapper writing the email also said that he'd check back a few months later. And if he could arrange an airtight immunity deal for his colleagues, he might even reveal their names, turn himself in, make a full confession, and go to jail.
0: It is a serious offer, not lightly made, and one that I hope I will have the courage to go through with after enjoying a few last months of freedom. If it comes down to it, I'm willing to live off the grid and read books for the rest of my life. If it means a second chance for someone I think deserves it, or if it means hope enough to sustain someone I have wronged, then I should be willing to read books behind bars.
1: So the kidnapper is willing to go to jail to give Denise a second chance at life because that's just how awesome she is. The alleged kidnapper then says Goodbye. That is all I
0: can think of. We are deeply sorry for the pain that this has brought everybody including the police and their families. It ends now. For what it's worth, what could have ended up as a prolific and dangerous criminal group has disbanded, and you have Victim F to thank for it. So stop persecuting her. I don't think you will find us, but if you do, good work. You may already have done one of us in. Another has had a nervous breakdown. And for my part, you definitely have me looking over my shoulder and jumping as shadows. I think I'll only find peace if I move to the middle of nowhere or go overseas and teach English or some such. If you do manage to pull me out of a hole some day, good job, well played. I'm not going to hurt anybody, but depending on where I am at that moment in time, I might have another spray painted squirt gun like I used in the kidnapping. Or maybe it will be a real gun, empty. Or maybe not empty. Don't think too hard about that. Just aim true and get it done. If it ever comes to that.
1: So that correspondence ended rather vaguely, and Lieutenant Park and the Vallejo police did not issue an apology. They stuck by their hoax claim. The alleged kidnappers did not publish their planned statement on Wednesday, April 1st, which oddly is April Fool's Day. After this, the communication ceased, and the emails sent by the alleged kidnappers failed to do the trick. Aaron and Denise had to be content with watching the press trash their reputations and waiting for criminal charges the Vallejo police had threatened them with to end up in court. So this was their new, horrible, normal situation. But then, something took place in the town of Dublin, California, about 40 miles from Vallejo. On Friday, June 5th, two and a half months after the alleged kidnapping, emergency services received a call at about 3 a.m.
2: County emergency. We had a break in. They are out there right now. My husband's fighting with them. I just broke loose. I will hide in the bathroom right now. He running away already. away. Okay, my husband's bleeding.
1: The call was from Mrs. Lin Yen, and she and her husband, Chung Yen, had quite a story to tell. They had been woken up at about 3 a.m. by a masked intruder with a bright flashlight. There was a red laser dot pointing at them. The intruder said that their daughter, who was 22 years old, was safe in another room. Mr. and Mrs. Yin were told to lie on their stomachs and the intruder indicated that he wanted to tie them up with zip ties. However, when he went to tie up Mr. Yin, Mr. Yin resisted despite the fact he was 60 years old. He tried to pull off the intruder's mask. Mrs. Yen then ran to the bathroom to call 911, resulting in the call we heard. The intruder hit Mr. Yen in the head with a flashlight, creating a gash and causing him to bleed. Mr. Yen then shouted to his wife, go get the gun, go get the gun, which was a ruse because they didn't own a gun and only goes to show how even the threat of owning a gun protects human life. The ruse was enough to cause the intruder to flee and run out of their house. But when the police showed up to investigate, they found the gear that the intruder had brought with him but abandoned, including a Samsung Galaxy phone. Detective Misty Caruso of the Alameda County Sheriff's Office was asked to assist in executing a search warrant on the home in South Lake Tahoe whose address was linked to the cell phone.
6: It was an utterly ordinary looking small cottage with a dark gray siding, white trim, and a neatly manicured yard, like so many of the rental properties in the Tony Resort area, with no hint of the darkness that happened inside of those walls. The man they were there for was Matthew Muller, a 38 year old Harvard Law School graduate, ex Marine, and recently disbarred immigration attorney. He'd barricaded himself inside the home owned by his parents by piling trash, boxes, chairs, and even a massage table against the front door. Karasu and her colleagues had to use a battering ram to break through the front door and push through the debris, only to find Muller standing silently in the hallway. Just under six feet tall, with a slender build, auburn hair, and dark eyes, he towered over Karasu. He didn't say a word, not then, and not after they handcuffed him and took him into custody, pausing only to kick shut his laptop as sheriff's deputies escorted him out of the home. Karasu followed behind, snapping a photo of him outside in case they needed it for their investigation. The interior of the house was an absolute wreck, with garbage, clothes, and boxes strewn all over the living room and on the kitchen counters. One of the boxes was filled with license plates. Another held a key maker for several types of Ford vehicles. There was a stun gun on the rocking chair in the living room.
1: As Detective Karasu investigated the case, the evidence clearly linked the man to the home invasion in Dublin. When they searched the car, Detective Caruso discovered...
6: A duffel bag containing a blow-up doll dressed all in black that someone had wrapped in thick metal wire. Nerf guns painted black with laser pointers taped to them. More duct tape and zip ties. And several pairs of swim goggles with black tape over the lenses. A black nylon belt with an attached pouch contained another pair of blacked-out goggles. This pair had a long, blonde hair hanging from it. And that was when her suspicions became a certainty. Oh my God, she thought. Someone was wearing those goggles. Who? The car's
1: GPS system indicated that it had recently traveled to Huntington Beach in Southern California. Oh, and they also found Muller had Aaron's laptop, which had been stolen on the night of Denise's kidnapping. <laughs>
3: Stunning vindication for the 29-year-old woman. The FBI now says Denise Huskins was telling the truth all along about being kidnapped back in March. Denise fought back tears and held hands with her boyfriend, Aaron Quinn, as their lawyers blasted local police for originally labeling their kidnapping story a hoax. The Vallejo Police Department owes an apology to Ms. Huskins and Mr. Quinn
4: big break in that case when a california woman was abducted from her home her boyfriend tied up and drugged police accused them of faking the kidnapping but now another man is behind bars and authorities say it was not a hoax
3: today is a fabulous day for denise huskins For Aaron Quinn, they are absolutely 100%, not just not guilty, but innocent. This morning,
6: investigators say the alleged mastermind behind a bizarre Northern California kidnapping plot could have even more victims. We were happy
3: to hear that the name had surfaced
1: again. And indeed, Matthew Muller was tied to other similar crimes in the region. So Aaron and Denise had been telling the truth all along. No matter how bizarre the story was, it really was true. The perpetrator was Matthew Mueller. He was a former sergeant in the Marine Corps and he had a law degree from Harvard Law School. In 2009, he'd moved to San Francisco where he worked for a law firm specializing in immigration law. All that sounds like he was a good, respectable, productive member of society, but in 2008, he had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and he didn't like taking his meds because of the side effects. He got new meds, but they led him to have insomnia and paranoia. He heard voices and believed the Chinese government was targeting him. So all of that mental illness might have had something to do with the bizarre emails he sent to the press and the police. He also was disbarred from the legal profession for refusing to return a client's money and he had lived a block from Aaron Quinn on Mare Island. Interestingly, Mueller spoke to the press while he was awaiting trial for what he did to Aaron and Denise, and as a former lawyer, he knew not to make damaging admissions to the press that could be used against him in court.
4: Hey, uh, Mr. Muller Henry Lee from KTVU uh, used to be with the Chronicle you probably uh, know uh, j- j- just for the record we're uh, sorry about all the technical difficulties let me just get- oh that's okay
0: I hear that the system
4: yeah, you know what? I'm the only Asian guy who knows nothing about technology. It might be a firewall. I don't know. Uh, so let, let me just get right to it, because I, I, this thing may not work in any minute. Now, how would you uh, speak to Denise's uh, feelings that she's been uh, horrifically traumatized by you, she says. I know uh, you've been traumatized. How about her trauma as she, as she describes it? Well, again,
0: I'm, gonna, I, I'm really sorry, sir. I'm going to have to defer until uh, the trial. You know, I will certainly be taking the stand in my own defense, and uh,
4: What would, Sorry. That's okay. What would you say, is there anything you want to say directly to Denise or Aaron? Not necessarily about their wedding, but about what they say they experienced. Anything, any regrets, anything you would say to them?
3: I don't think I have, I think that if there's going to be
0: conversation, they should initiate it. There, that's their right at this point, so I wouldn't presume to say anything to them at this point.
4: Uh, let me ask you about the Vallejo Police. Why was it important for you to uh, defend Denise, send me uh, material over email? Uh, why, why did that get you concerned that they were not believing what she said?
0: I can't reply to that without confirming that I'm the person that sent those emails. Um, I will tell you I'm certainly outraged, as everybody should be, by the conduct of the police said so far as they decided at such an early phase in the investigation to turn it back to the victims and call it a hoax. Um, that was probably not the best belief I don't know all the motivations behind it so I won't presume to to say that, you know, but I didn't, yeah, it was obviously a very, very damaging move. I wish it had not happened.
4: Did you send me the so-called what people call it, the proof-of-life audio of Denise and why did you send that? I Sir: What do you want people to know about Matthew Muller? They see different parts of you? They see you as a proud, more marine Harvard Law graduate. What do you want people to know about
0: you: I think people should go hug their kid or hug their
3: dog and not spend a lot of time thinking about me.
1: Eventually, Muller pled no contest to charges of assault, battery, and the home invasion in Dublin. He also pled no contest to the crimes against Aaron and Denise and he earned a 40-year sentence on federal charges. Last year, in 2022, he got another 31 years added on state charges, so he's going to be in jail for a long time. None of this made the Vallejo Police Department look particularly good. No, it didn't, and that's not very surprising. Early on in the process, Aaron's lawyer Daniel Rousseau told him,
0: The Vallejo police are the most incompetent, corrupt police force around here, and they will do everything they can to railroad this kid, he said. Be prepared for that.
1: So Aaron's lawyer warned that the Vallejo Police Department was the most incompetent and corrupt police department in the area. And Denise's lawyer, Douglas Rappaport, was similarly dismissive of the idea that Lt. Kenny Park and the other members of Vallejo PD had done a good job.
3: <laughs> I would say that, um... Lieutenant Park looked pretty good on camera, but aside from that, everything that came from his mouth was hogwash. It was nonsense. They didn't do a good job in this case. They impeded the investigation to the point where Denise had to suffer through two days of anguish and assault. Had they just kept the phone off of airplane mode, had they just had some understanding that maybe possibly these two, that that Aaron was telling the truth, they could have found Denise. They could have saved her. I don't think they did a good job at all. I think that's just rhetoric.
0: Did Aaron and Denise have any recourse against the Vallejo PD for the way they were treated?
1: Well, it's very difficult to sue individual police officers because of the judge-invented legal doctrine of qualified immunity, which we've talked about before on the show. But they were able to file a civil suit against the city of Vallejo, Kenny Park, and Matthew Mustard. However, the city attorneys did not make it easy for them. The city also tried to get the lawsuit dismissed, which is a standard legal move, but a judge refused to toss it out. Here's a news clip featuring Aaron's mother, Mary Ann Quinn, explaining some additional things the city had done.
4: The civil lawsuit now shows attorneys for Vallejo are requesting all correspondence from Quinn and Huskins and family and friends from the time of the abduction until now, including correspondence between the pair and Matthew Mueller dating back to September 2014, six months before the kidnapping.
6: So why are you even thinking about blaming Aaron and Denise? Because he's already been convicted. So this seems like a very uh, poor way to run a case, and also it does cause... Emotional distress.
4: New evidence in the civil case also includes photos of a break-in at the Vallejo home three months after the kidnapping. Police spoke to the burglars and released them with no investigation.
6: They let the people go,
4: and that was the end of it. A family battle against a police department and a lawsuit showing no signs of resolution.
6: Vallejo police, you go to them for help, and they didn't do anything except hurt us.
1: Now, I don't want to be too hard on Vallejo because you can argue that it's just a standard part of discovery process to ask if there have been any communications between Aaron and Denise and Matthew Muller leading up to the crime, and if there were, that could show collusion between them and that this was some kind of larger scam operation. At least you could argue that. But as unpleasant as such requests may be, such malfeasance is a possibility that needs to be checked out as part of the legal process. However, Vallejo PD did fail to investigate the later break-in of Aaron's home, where a couple of people were apparently caught in the process of stealing their stuff and falsely claimed that Aaron had rented the property to them. Also, just in general, the Vallejo police behaved abominably during the whole thing. and. In 2018, the city of Vallejo gave Aaron and Denise $2.5 million as a settlement to keep the civil case from going to court where they could have lost even more money. So, there's some justice in that. Did they give Aaron and Denise an apology? Not at first. However, in 2020, five years later, when a new police chief came into office, the city and the police, the new police chief, finally apologized for how they treated Aaron and Denise.
0: In an emailed statement writing, quote, the Huskins-Quinn case was not publicly handled with the type of sensitivity a case of this nature should have been handled with. And for that, the city
6: extends an apology to Miss Huskins and Mr. Quinn. Vallejo Police Chief Shawnee Williams writes in part, quote, what happened to Miss Huskins and Mr. Quinn is horrific and evil. As the new chief of police,
0: I am committed to making sure survivors are given compassionate service with dignity and respect.
1: And their story has a happy ending.
3: Despite Denise and Aaron going through a real-life nightmare, their story does have a very happy ending. The two got married in 2018 and now have a baby daughter. So that's great. What happened to the police officials involved in the case, like
0: Lieutenant Park and Detective Mustard?
1: I don't know what disciplinary measures may have been taken against them behind the scenes. Uh, Kenny Park undoubtedly created legal liability with what he said to the press but he remained with the force until 2021 when he left. I wasn't able to determine why. Detective Mustard, who I have successfully refrained from calling mean Mr. Mustard, has been the subject of other complaints. We'll have a link where you can read about that, but he's apparently still with the force. But the force's reputation, which was not good before this case, has taken significant hits. In 2021, Aaron Quinn published an editorial calling for the Vallejo PD to be disbanded and rebuilt from the ground up to eliminate the problems with the department. We'll have a link to where you can read his argument.
0: Okay, so let's take a brief look at this case from the faith and faith and reason perspectives. From the reason perspective, what should the Vallejo PD have done when they were presented with this case?
1: When Aaron first told them his story, I don't fault them for considering the possibility that Aaron had killed Denise and was making up this story in a panic. The story was so bizarre with the detailed plan, the wetsuits, and the weirdly considerate kidnappers who were working for next to no money, they made it sound implausible. However, they also needed to take seriously the possibility that he was telling the truth because weird things do happen in life. And sometimes you may be dealing with a smart but crazy criminal who does weird stuff, which happened to be the case. They thus should have acted on this as if it also could have been a kidnapping. And they absolutely should never have put Aaron's phone into airplane mode during the crucial early hours of a reported kidnapping that was rock stupid. Why did Mueller wear a wetsuit during the crime? Basically, to prevent him from leaving any hairs and skin flakes that could have been used to identify him by his DNA. He talks about this in one of the emails he sent.
0: We also acknowledge that it's not impossible that we would have shed DNA during the operation, though we took countermeasures, including full-body wetsuits. Also, for purposes of a swimming escape, if the island were sealed off, exfoliating, moisturizing, hair nets and balaclavas. We attempted to plan not just for forensic techniques that exist now, but for techniques that could be used on preserved evidence years from now. That could include taking a vacuum bag full of dust, mostly skin, sucked up during the investigation and preserved, and in a few decades isolating, amplifying, and sequencing every last bit of DNA in there, and then comparing it to a mandatory government universal DNA database. And with some machine intelligence as smart as 100 investigators connected to massive historical data resources and working the matter around the clock, it would not be sufficient to simply introduce random
1: DNA noise. From a criminal perspective, that's actually quite smart, or as they say in law enforcement, it shows criminal sophistication. Lots of criminals are now being caught because of new DNA technologies that didn't exist decades ago when they committed their crimes. We discussed an example of that in episode 38 on how we caught the Golden State Killer, in which Joseph D'Angelo was revealed to be the Golden State Killer based on matching his DNA against one of his relatives who had contributed their genome to a public DNA database. If you're a criminal, it's not at all unreasonable from a criminal perspective to try to anticipate where these kinds of technologies are going to go in the future and how you might defeat them.
0: In his emails, Mueller claimed to be part of a group with three core members that participated in Denise's kidnapping.
1: Are there still people out there who were part of this group? There's a debate about that. On the one hand, the police did find a blow-up doll dressed in black and reinforced with wire, making it able to stand on its own. They also apparently found tapes of people whispering that had been recorded, and it's speculated that he used the blow-up dummy and the tapes to create the illusion of him having associates with him. Also, he later claimed he was working alone. However, on the other hand, Aaron and Denise are convinced that he worked with other people. It's not possible for him to have, have done this on his own. There's just a lot that... We're never going to get answers to a lot that we're just never going to find out.
3: And we kind of had to make peace with that.
1: This conclusion is based on several factors, not just seeing a pair of immobile legs in the darkness like the blow up doll would have had and not just hearing tapes of people whispering uh, Aaron and, and Denise reported hearing other people moving around them in the house while the voice or Matthew Muller was still with them.
0: When I lay down in the closet, I
1: could hear
3: a drill going on in one part of downstairs, and people going through my cabinet. What well, I was hoping it was that they're stealing stuff.
1: In their book, Victim F, from crime victims to suspects to survivors, they describe several such incidents. I won't go through them all, but here are a few examples.
6: I feel vibrations of footsteps leaving the bedroom, while the voice places swim goggles with some kind of dark tape wrapped around the lenses over each of our heads. The closet is above the living area in the house, and I hear someone going through the kitchen cabinets while another uses a drill in the living room. The voice remains upstairs with us, rummaging through what sounds like a bag of equipment in the master bathroom. These pained thoughts are interrupted by the crackling of a two-way radio. The white light still illuminates Aaron's bedroom, so I'm able to see the outline of a shadowy figure as it brushes past me. A man's voice breaks the static, barking out some kind of military commands that fade behind me. In that same moment, I hear the loud snap of a taser from the other side of the master bedroom, warning me what will happen if I don't comply.
1: So Denise saw a shadowy human form move past her, while on the other side of the room, someone else turned on a taser to warn her to comply. And as Muller was carrying Denise
6: downstairs, As he turns the corner of the stairs, he shifts his weight to the left, to let someone pass, whispering, no, as the other person continues up the stairs, toward the master bedroom.
1: And according to Aaron, Minutes
0: later, I hear two sets of footsteps, walking across the bathroom tile. Someone kneels behind me. The voice whispers back over his shoulder, Are we doing Contingency 1 or Contingency 2? Contingency
1: 1 or Contingency 2? All of this really sounds like there were multiple people involved, and Mueller's denial of this could just be his attempt to keep his buddies out of trouble and possibly keep his own family safe in case his buddies wanted to take reprisals if he snitched on them.
0: And what can we say about the victim F scenario from the faith perspective?
1: we don't need to say much. Uh, Obviously, the criminal activity engaged in by Matthew Muller and any associates he may have had was horrific. It was evil and immoral, and they never should have done it. Similarly, the way the Vallejo PD and the news media treated Aaron and Denise was also horrific, and it never should have happened either. Fortunately, situations as bizarre as this are uncommon, and we can all pray for the victims of criminals, for law enforcement, and for the criminals themselves. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on this case? The victim F case is truly bizarre, which is why I wanted to cover it. Uh, I can't blame the police for suspecting what they did, but I can blame them for not taking the story seriously and seriously investigating it. I also can blame the news media for just mindlessly repeating whatever the police said and not critically examining it. The press too often is just a lapdog of authoritative institutions in society, including the government. A lapdog rather than the watchdog that they're supposed to be. Aaron and Denise did not in any way deserve what happened and how they were treated. Given how badly this could have ended, I'm glad they came out as okay as they did. And I'm glad that they published a book on their story, because by knowing about this bizarre case, we'll be in a better position to spot similar bizarre cases when they occur in the future, and maybe people won't be treated as horribly as Aaron and Denise. So, Jimmy, what further
0: resources can we offer the viewers and listeners?
1: We'll have links to Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn's book, Victim F. Also, uh, James Duane's book, You Have a Right to Remain Innocent. He's a lawyer who... uh, speaks very strongly about the disadvantages of talking to the police without a lawyer, so be sure and check out his book. We'll also have a Don't Talk to the Police debate video that he did, which is eye-opening. We'll also have uh, information about this case from the FBI, as well as information on Stockholm Syndrome, the 2022 judgment against Mueller, an article about Kenny Park leaving the Vallejo Police, uh, Matt Mustard being under investigation, and Aaron Quinn's call for the Vallejo Police Department to be disbanded and refounded.
0: All right, so that's it from us this time. What are your theories about Victim F and the amazing story of what happened? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page by sending us an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the Starquest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord or calling our Mysterious Feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619 738
1: 4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work on this episode. You can check out their work by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, uh, and see how much the video aspect of the show adds to it and what we're able to do with it. Um, Oasis Studio 7 is also available for hire for your own video and animation needs. So check out their work and visit them. And while you're at my YouTube channel, I am trying to grow it, so we're trying to get to, at least at the time of recording, we're trying to get 50,000 uh, subscribers, so I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get notified whenever I have a new video, whether it's a Mysterious World video or one of the others I put up. Also, be sure to like and comment and interact with the videos because that tells YouTube you were interested in it and therefore that other people would be interested in it too. So the algorithm will show it to them as well. And Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week is a fifth Friday. So we're going to be talking about weird questions like, can an alien be Pope? Uh, The Omicron COVID variant, could Bigfoot be an alien? Conjoined twins and marriage, evolution and morality, ball lightning, and proxy sacraments for Alzheimer's patients.
0: Excellent. Very good. Folks, be sure to get your very own Mysterious World t-shirt. If you're watching the video, you can see mine, uh, or uh, you can get this on a mug or other things in our merchandise shop at sqpn.com slash merch. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 277. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. And by Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness programs and daily accountability check-ins. Strengthen yourself to help further God's kingdom. Work out for the right reason with the right mindset. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. And by The Grady Group, a Catholic company bringing financial clarity to their clients across the United States, using safe money options to produce reasonable rates of return for their clients. Learn more at gradygroupinc.com. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mistakes world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Star Trek. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash trek.